This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, this is episode 13 of the Focus Hunting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dean Tremblay. Dean is the co-host of the Federal Premium's Trigger Effect. Dean and I discuss the bumps and bruises on the road to becoming a successful TV host, and we also touch on the controversy over hunting in Africa. So as always, sit back, turn the rest of this intro up, and enjoy this episode. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Focus Hunting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dean Tremblay. Um, this is the second attempt at this podcast. The first go around I had a recording issue, so uh, we got it all figured out now and yeah, we're recording. So uh, thanks for coming on again, Dean. Yeah, no problem at all, Cam. How's the, uh, how's the snow down there? Well, I'll tell you, last time I talked to you, it was uh, Green Lawn and today we really got hammered in Falkland. I don't know about you guys, but we got probably just under a foot. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, we got we didn't get a lot here. I'm pretty close to the lake though. We only got about an inch, but I know my parents they got about uh, just under a foot. They live in Rock Creek, so yeah, lots of snow, lots of snow. You're in uh, you're in the Falkland area, so how long you been out there? Uh, actually, I've been here just about coming up on 11 years, but I mean, I haven't really strayed a whole lot from home. I was born and raised in Vernon. And I did all my post secondary education in Ontario and moved right back. Kids are all grown up and out of the house, I guess. You betcha. I'm, uh, well, I mean, I still have one of my adult sons living with me. Um, he's heading back to university, but other than that, yeah, I'm an empty nester. I have five kids in total. Oh, wow. Five. I thought three was a handful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. So just you and the wifey now, I guess. Yeah, just me and the wife. Yeah, it's uh, kind of quiet and lots of time on our hands. You don't realize how much time kids take up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine you're pretty busy, but, uh, you know, I, I think everybody already knows who you are, but maybe for the few who don't, can you give us a brief intro to yourself? Yeah, no problem. I mean, I, like I said, I'm a British Columbian. I was born and raised in uh, Vernon, BC. Prior to the TV show, I was a career uh, research biologist and I specialized in ungulate biology and freshwater fisheries and I spent pretty much the majority of my younger adulthood um, doing research. Uh, I think I can't remember last count was like 
75 or 76 studies that I've conducted uh, throughout British Columbia in those two sectors. Gotcha. Everybody's aware of your highly successful television career, but uh, being the host of a hunting television show is somewhat ubiquitous to the Trumley name. Can you tell us who pioneered your family name into television? Yeah, definitely. It was my grandfather, uh, Smokey Trumbly. He used to have a uh, radio talk show called Smoke in the Country. And he literally did like weekly uh, reports on hunting and fishing uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. He also wor uh, worked for the Vernon Daily News and did a column as well. Uh, talking about hunting and fishing and he also did some stints on television too and so as a, a kid growing up as his grandson I was very familiar with uh, you know many times having to sit quiet in a truck in a clear cut because he connected by radio to you know CJIB or CCAL and did his reports and things like that so it was it was uh, a normal upgrowing for me so it wasn't too much of a, a stretch uh, you know for me to eventually get into television. So I imagine, like you said, you got a lot of opportunity to hunt with uh, with Smokey. Was uh, was he the biggest hunting mentor growing up, or was that role split with your dad? Yeah, I mean, I would say it was split to a certain extent. My dad was a very successful businessman for Consumers Glass, and uh, you know, raising two kids, so you know, he spent as much time as he could with us. Uh, but obviously, you know, as many fathers and, and mothers can identify with, you got to work. So I definitely spent the majority of my time in the bush with my grandfather. He's he comes from a long line of hunters, both his father and grandfather hunted. Um, so a lot of my experience and drive to, to not just hunt, but to eventually become a biologist came from the influence of my grandfather. Five kids, uh, you see any of them following in, uh, in the tradition of hunting host? I do. And you know what, like, it's funny, like you look at our generation, we kind of didn't really have much of a choice because I mean, we always hunted with our grandfathers and fathers, but nowadays with technology and everything, even with my five kids, not all five of my kids hunt, all five of my kids eat game and they really enjoy the hunting lifestyle, but I've only had about, uh, I would say right now, two solid ones. Both my boys are, are hunters, um, especially my oldest boy, Dylan, he's a, a hardcore hunter and actually have my youngest daughter who has started to express an interest in it. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat when you get to take uh, take your kids out. My kids are they're right into it. My daughter's right into archery, so hopefully she follows that path. So in your younger years, you did a bit of guiding. Yeah, it's uh, Kent and I are kind of the opposite of each other. Um, Kent, Kent literally did twenty five to thirty years of big game guiding all over Canada, dabbled in biology, whereas I was the opposite. I dedicated my life to doing biology, and I dabbled a little bit in guiding. Most of my guiding started at a young age with my grandfather. Uh, he was a houndsman, so I did a lot of cougar guiding and then uh, later on uh, you know with some of the outfits around here um, I did do some mountain goat guiding and mule deer guiding but un unfortunately I didn't get to do as much guiding as I had hoped because again I was a biologist and trying to make money in that avenue. Yeah you mentioned Kent that's your your co-host on the trigger effect. Yeah well he's originally from Rapid City Manitoba he was born and raised there but he spent the majority of his uh, younger adult years out here because he did guide um, pretty much exclusively in northern BC, but he did guide the prairies as well, too. But he has uh, he's very well known. He has a lake name for him up there. You know, he's hunted. I, he's got this meticulous ability of journaling everything. And uh, I think he has like 56 guided sheep kills to his credit. Wow. Yeah, he, he's a hardcore hunter. And I have a lot of respect for him in those in those aspects. Holy, yeah, that's something else. That's crazy. So uh, where in Ontario did you, did you go to school? Um, I went to school at Sir Sanford Fleming, uh, which is a specialty school known for its natural resource program. It's, it's won all kinds of awards. 
I, uh, I did my training in fish and wildlife. And, uh, and as I said, later on in my career, as I got my professional biologist status in BC, I focused in more on ungulate biology, more specifically mule deer. And then I did a lot of freshwater fisheries work as well, too. Oh, yeah. So what was your first paid job as a biologist? <laughs> my first paid job, I worked for Halton Region Conservation Authority in Ontario. And I did creel census work on a whole bunch of reservoirs there, uh, basically walking around and, and uh, doing biological measurements on fishermen's catches and, you know, finding out the harvest per unit efforts and things like that. So it, it, uh, it, was, it was exciting, you know, at the time. And, and, uh, but I definitely moved up to bigger and better things in my career. Biology, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I, I don't see the financial gains in being a biologist a lot, but I see it being a lot more fulfilling where you get to work outside and you get to do a lot of conservation work. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. I mean, a lot of biologists, uh, I think, are definitely underpaid for what they do. And usually if you work within government, you're also underfunded. <laughs> so it, it is kind of a, a thankless job. And also, too, it always tends to be you're the scapegoat because uh, when things go wrong, people blame, blame the biologists when they should be blaming the, the more upper end political managers, yeah. managers, um, you know, the biologists, I think, are about the only group I've met that are more passionate about wildlife than hunters. Yeah, well, maybe our politicians should be listening to the biologists and basing the decisions they make on our wildlife based on science and not based on what's going to get you votes. <laughs> Growing up, you had a grandfather involved in television. Is that something you always wanted to do as well? No, actually, I, I didn't. Um, I, I originally was going to go the same route as Kent. I, I wanted to be a big game guide and guide all over the place and everything. But my grandfather had a, a sit down with me and, and, you know, he came from a guiding background and he looked at me and said, you know what, grandson, I, I get it. You want to be outdoors, but you're never going to make a living as a guide. You're going to be living paycheck to paycheck. You're going to be underappreciated. And, and they are. And so he really pushed me. He said, go get an education because he, he always used to say it's the lightest suitcase you'll carry in life. And he's right. And I'm glad he pushed me in that direction. But no, I had no interest at all, actually, of television. I'm actually, the other reason I became a biologist, I'm, I'm a recluse. I like being on my own and, and I'm not a big you know, get in front of people, you know, kind of things. So it's kind of ironic. Really? I, I came, yeah. yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, I enjoy my quiet time. And my favorite thing is sitting on a mountainside all by myself. Yeah, you, you'd think that somebody who's on television would always be eager to be in front of people and, and eager to talk and everything like that. But uh, so, so why did you decide to get into television? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I worked at fairly high levels as a biologist. Um, I, I can't uh, knock my career. I mean, not only did I work, you know, provincially, you know, doing on the ground research and stuff like that, but I worked federally. I sat for six plus years on COSAWIC under the Species at Risk Act, working with some of the top scientists in, in Canada. And I also sat for almost five years as a Canadian delegate on the United Nations Environmental Program uh, under the Convention of Biological Diversity, working with 72 other countries. But the one thing I, I really saw, and it's kind of exactly what you alluded to, is like, you know, I was doing study after study after study and, and not seeing things followed. And it frustrated me and call me a quitter or whatever. But I, I just I burnt out when I hit my 40s. I, you know, it was uh, it was like banging your head against the wall. You know, the current mule deer situation we're experiencing right now. We blew the whistle on that like literally 25 years ago, you know, saying, look, we're not heading in a good direction with our ungulates. So what ended up happening was, is, and Kent was hitting the end of his guiding career, because as everybody knows, you know, those mountains are relentless and you can only do it so much. And as he was hitting his 40s, we both kind of looked at each other and said, you know, it's time for a career change. And 
We wanted to share the outdoor experiences that him and I did every year and also push the message of conservation and management because, and, and it's no slag against anyone, but even in the hunting community, a lot of people don't understand what that really means. You know, it's yeah. not just buying your hunting license and contributing to a mm -hmm. fund. I mean, yeah. conservation yeah. and management is, is a very complex thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think our government definitely doesn't have that figured out yet, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we can all work. We can all work on that. So starting a new adventure, a new chapter in your life at 40 years old is is quite an undertaking. Uh, I mean, today, with, you know, with YouTube, everybody who has a cell phone can go out and take a video of themselves and, and post it online. And obviously with TV and stuff, there's obviously a process. How did you guys get, you know, from being a couple biologists to having an idea of being on TV to getting on TV? <laughs> you know, that, that must be quite the you know to me that's quite the that's quite the leap how did you get from one thing to the other uh, honestly uh overconfidence and ignorance <laughs> is probably the best way of putting it those are two characteristics that aren't bad to have in business <laughs> i i honestly have to say that um kent and i had no idea what we were jumping into um I think we're probably like 90% of people who watch hunting TV shows look and go, oh, I can do a better job. And we really thought that, you know, and, and we also thought there wasn't enough messaging in there for conservation management. And we figured, you know, I was a research biologist, went to school for years, Kent did big game guiding in the tough, how hard can it be? And I will tell you that the, the hunting television show industry is one of the toughest businesses I have ever worked in. And I honestly think you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than hitting success in, in this industry. And it's not that the industry is bad. It's just from the outside appearing in, it looks like a massive industry, but it's not. It's actually a very small industry. Everybody knows everybody. And uh, if you don't tie into one of the big, big companies like Vista Outdoors, if you don't get in with those big conglomerate companies that own kind of the top brands, uh, your chances of succeeding are very little. And, and because everybody has YouTube, everybody is pushing. And uh, so sponsors just get thousands of requests a year. And we had no understanding going into it, Kevin. We really didn't. And in the first four years, we self-funded. It was passion. It was our will to want to succeed. And I, I remember the conversation we had going into our, our fifth year. Kent and I said that if, if things don't change, we were going to pull the plug. And we won the lottery. We, we got lucky. Yeah. With anything, I think hard work and persistence pays off. But uh, yeah, I can see the hunting industry or with the hunting television industry being very clicky where, you know, if you don't have an in or you don't know somebody that's directly involved, it's going to be a lot harder to get in, um, yeah. especially yeah. with sponsors. So do you, do you guys go approach sponsors first or did you go approach like a, a television network first and then they kind of gave you the, the steps to take or how did you find out all the steps involved in getting to television it's it, it to me it's it's it's, su it's such a big undertaking it, it is huge and and you know for for Kent and I you know again this is where the ignorance part comes in we thought you know hey we're already hunters and we dabbled a little bit in videography so all we got to do is film our hunts and that's the easy part like it, it honestly is the easy part and and even it's complex but I, I'll have to be honest with you like it it's um it's not as easy as just phoning up sponsors and they just jump at you and say oh yeah i'll give you thousands of dollars i mean it doesn't happen at the beginning we accepted anything i mean whether it was product whether it was a little bit of cash and and that's the thing it's a little bit of cash and what people need to understand about this industry is it's very opposite of mainstream television mainstream television you 
you work, you have, you know, certain types of uh, funds and grants you can apply for, and then you put your product out there and networks buy it from you. And, and, you know, depending on how good it is, the more money you make, where you're slotted, the more money you make in the hunting industry, us as television shows, we have to buy our time with the networks. So whether it's wild TV, sportsman's channel, outdoor channel, we have to purchase that time and it's expensive. Oh. Yeah. And, and no so kidding. that's yeah. why, that's why sponsors are so important because they're actually the ones that pay us to promote. And, and the one thing oh. we had to learn is we're a business. Everybody seems to think television is, is, you know, this thing where hunters just get to go out and do their thing. And that's not true. We're a business. We're promoters and our job is to promote two things. It's to promote the sponsors and it's to promote the outfitters that are donating the hunts. Or So that's why we have to promote. Everybody's always like, oh, you guys are product pushers. Well, we have to be because yeah. of the way the, the way the system is set up. I would actually like to see it go to more like syndicated television because now you have to produce a high quality product that networks are interested in buying and you don't oh. have to focus on on you know sponsoring right because and it's not that the sponsoring is a bad thing but it's just the problem is is it it takes away from the quality entertainment and good hunting television you know and and it puts it more to where we have no choice but to promote um you know products throughout the show because if you don't do it there's a million other people out there willing to do it and and, and it's the same thing with outfitters you know when they contact us they're donating a six seven thousand dollar hunt to get their 30 minutes of advertising so we got to promote them and uh, that's the way the industry works yeah. So how much influence does your sponsors have on your, have on your hunts? Do they give you a list and say, this is what we want to see from you guys, or this is how many hunts we want to see from you guys, or, you know, and then you also, I imagine you have multiple sponsors. Must be a lot of work juggling everybody and keeping everybody happy. Well, it, it is to a certain extent. And that's why, like, if you notice on, on television, you know, you have archery shows or you have hunting, you know, rifle shows or crossbow shows, because the problem is if you start taking on sponsors like, you know, archery sponsors and also rifle sponsors. Now, all of a sudden, you can only offer them maybe six episodes a year as opposed to 13. So like for Kent and I, because of our sponsors, that's why we rifle hunt. A lot of people say, why don't you archery hunt more? Well, because Federal and Savage and Bushnell are sponsors and they're all rifle related. So we got to use rifle, you know, because they do get mad. Now, for as far as input at the beginning, when we were a young show, they had quite a bit of an input. But now that we're almost 10 years old, and, you know, we've got the industry figured out. We get a lot more freedom now because they trust us, right? And right. they know that we're going to promote the right things. But, it is, again, it is business, Kevin. So, you know, for us to just plan our season ourselves and say, screw everybody else, um, you know, wouldn't be very good business. So we always have the courtesy of our big sponsors. We phone them up and say, hey, guys, what do you want to promote this year? What are you looking at? Is there any special requests? And we follow through with those things because, uh, again, they're, our client is them. So we've got to make sure we're doing our job and giving them what they want. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that the guide outfitters, they offer you guys hunts. Now, do you guys take every every guide that will offer you a hunt? Or do you have a certain amount of guides that you work for or that you've worked with in the past that you like to to stay with? How does that process work? How do you pick the guides that you hunt with for through the year? Yeah, I mean... 
we like to try sticking with diversity for the fan base because again, the other 50% is entertaining people. So we like to make sure Kent and I are kind of flexing into all kinds of aspects of hunting, you know, to show people something different so that they're, you know, they're not getting bored with just whitetail episodes or just turkey episodes. So that's one thing. But for as far as who we work with, um, yeah, we're very careful who we work with. Just, I mean, we do get contacted a lot by outfitters uh, offering stuff. But you got to remember this industry, again, as promoters, reputation is everything. And uh, so, you know, as everybody knows, in any industry, there's good outfitters out there and there's bad outfitters out there. So we do our research on them. Um, there is some outfitters that we continue to work with because they're just fantastic people and uh, good business people. And, you know, they understand the industry. But, um, you know, we don't have a lot of return outfitters because the game we're trying to keep the show diverse. Now you guys, you, you book your outfitters. How far in advance do you have to book these? Like how far in advance are you guys booking your hunts for your episodes? Yeah, minimum for us is, is one year. Uh, we prefer to book out two years ahead. And again, it's because of logistics. Um, with Kent's extensive background in outfitting, Kent's responsibility is the outfitters. He is the one that researches into them. He's the initial contact. We have outfitter agreements, legal contracts we sign for every episode that we do. He's responsible for those components. Once Kent signs up an outfitter and that gets locked into our schedule, then it gets turned over to Denise, who's our logistics person. And, and her job is she does all the research into the locations. She books accommodation, food, uh, any fees or permits that we require to get into countries, all the hunting licenses, everything like that. She does all logistics for the show. So when that time rolls around, Kent and I have an itinerary set out. We know exactly what we're doing because when we start traveling, our job now is to think of the, the camera work and to think of the hunt because this isn't like regular TV where you can reel it back. You know, you, you, you got to have uh, your mind in the game because thousands of dollars rely on the decisions we make in the field on those hunts. Saying a year in advance. So 2000, so for 2020, you guys would have been scheduling your episodes and booking your hunts in 2019. That must've been quite the challenge for you this year with uh, COVID. It was a nightmare actually, um, because as you know, COVID came on quick. And then of course the travel bans came on quick and you know, we, even though we produce 13 episodes a year, which is considered a full-time show, we film between 15 to 18 hunts a year because it is hunting. Uh, nothing's a guarantee. And we have hunts fail every year, even with outfitters. For us, we went from third or we had 16 hunts fully booked uh, for this season coming up. And when COVID hit, we lost pretty much all of them. I think we dropped down to like three or four secured hunts. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it was a nightmare. And um and the problem is the networks don't care because we have a contract with the networks. So they want their 13 episodes. And, and so we went into scramble mode and Kent and I made the decision that we were only going to hunt Western Canada. Uh, and, and the reason was, is because we could drive to it and be responsible and also prevent each other from exposing or exposing outfitters to COVID. And we had to pull in some favors. We phoned some of our Western Canada outfitters and said, Hey, look at guys like, you know, we know times are tough for you. Times are tough for us. You might as well advertise and can you bail us out? And I have to really take my hats off to our outfitters and the do-it-ourself hunts because we, we pulled the season off. Well, barely. We needed seven episodes in the fall and we got seven episodes and that was it. Like we, it was tough, very tough. 
Yeah, well, that's good. At least you pulled her off. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the guide outfitting uh, industry yeah, is certainly taking a, a hit this year. Hopefully the guys can uh, can pull through this. So what about a filming crew? Do you guys use a filming crew or do you just self-film? It, it varies. It varies from hunt to hunt. Certain styles of hunts like waterfall hunts, um, you know, we require usually one to two cameramen uh, just because you it's lots of action, things coming in from different angles. But for the most part, though, Kent and I uh, actually learned how to do videography ourselves. So when you see Kent in front of the camera, I'm behind the camera and vice yeah. versa. Uh, we did it for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, we talked to a lot of outfitters when we got into the industry and they said that, you know, one of the extreme costs for them is, you know, they, they book a TV show to come in and they show up with like six, seven people. And, you know, they've got to they've feed and accommodate all those people. So I decided that, you know, for the purpose of keeping the cost down, if him and I could learn how to do both of those roles, that it would help that. The the second reason we did it is that we did use cameramen on some of our hunts and the the cameraman's the boss, like the hunter's not the boss. Yeah, we're in front of the camera, we're keeping the, the show rolling, but when it comes to pulling the trigger, that is the cameraman's decision. And uh, we learned early on that bringing in somebody, it was easy to train them how to run a camera, but not everybody knows how to hunt and not everybody Uh, knows how to hunt the way Kent and I do. We looked at each other and just said, Hey, like we've been hunting with each other since our twenties and and our whole lives. I know him inside out. He knows me inside out and who better to be a cameraman. So for the most part, when you're watching our show, it's one of us behind the camera. It's, but we do have two full-time cameramen that, that we do work with. And uh, you know, on big hunts, like we're going to Namibia coming up here and Trent Headley is our number one camera guy. When we go on big, big trips like that, we take him. Uh, but you'll still notice the second angle is Ken Dry. You know, we still usually always grab a camera. Okay. So uh, Trent, has he done any hunting before? Is he kind of new? When you take on a cameraman, do you, is that something you look for? Or you say, well, do you have a little bit of hunting background in you? Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of videographers out there that are going to be upset about what I'm about to say. But the one thing Kent and I learned on early is that um, it's easier to teach somebody how to operate a camera than to teach them how to do a lifetime of hunting. So what we did is we actually reached out. Trent Headley is a childhood friend of Kent's and uh, a lifetime hunter and his dad was a hunter. And what we found is it's actually easier to teach a lifetime hunter how to film than a videographer how to hunt. So both of our cameramen, the other one's Ryan English, same thing, you know, we've known them a long time and we taught them how to run the cameras. And again, it's just because they can read us. They can't read us as good as each other, but you know, they can read us a lot better and read the scenarios. Like I never have to turn around to Trent and say, stop moving because he knows not to move, you know? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so we're, we're pretty picky on, on our camera people. Our crew's very tight. And uh, usually it's like one of like four of us that is behind the camera when things are going down. So when you and Trent are filming, it's just the two of you. How do you guys decide who's the shooter for the episode? Do you just draw straws on that or, or how does that work? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, believe it or not, Kent and I, we've, we've grown up together. I know a lot of his bucket list. He knows a lot of my bucket list. So a lot of the times, if it's something I know he's really wanted to get his whole life, that it's not a tough decision. But believe it or not, like, I think after 10 years of doing this and a lifetime of hunting, we don't really get a lot of that whole jealousy thing. And, and I think also to the one thing when you take on a TV show, I get as much enjoyment as capturing that, you know, golden shot on the camera as I do pulling the trigger. And so for Kent and I, it's equally as exciting when an animal's killed, whether it's, you know, us actually doing the killing or it's us doing the filming. 
So we don't, yeah, I've never, we've never done rock, paper, scissors, nothing. We just kind of sat down and said, well, you want this? I want that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then we just kind of do it. So camaraderie there. That's good. Um, 10 years in the industry. Have you seen the industry change? You know, the, the, the TV industry to me really hasn't changed a whole lot. I think the only difference is when we first got into it, it wasn't as competitive from the hunter's end because, you know, it, it was expensive to get into. I mean, the cameras were expensive and, you know, editing was expensive. I think as that's becoming more affordable, there's a lot more people now wanting to get into TV. That, that's the biggest change I would say. Now, on the, focusing just on the hunting front of that uh, question, I've seen significant change in hunting from when I was a kid to hunting present day. I think when I was a kid, you know, growing up or even in my 20s and my early 30s, there was a lot of camaraderie in hunting, a lot of cooperation. Uh, a lot of the focus was on on the experience itself and, and putting wild game in the freezer. Uh, it was very family oriented, friend oriented and everything like that. But I think, and, and I think our industry's Partly responsible, I wouldn't even say partly, it's a large part responsible for the shift of hunting becoming egotistical. And, uh, you know, it, it's now less about the experience and the meat in the freezer and more about the pictures on internet and the size of the animal. I mean, just the uh, uh, gripping grins and, you know, I shot the biggest buck or I shot the biggest bighorn. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely changed. I mean, I even, you know, in the last four or five years with the introduction of cell phones and technology that, yeah, it sure made a shift. Yeah, and, and I, I think, and actually, just as you were talking, I remembered something else, and I really want to point this out. But when I look at the hunting industry, when I, I grew up as a kid, you know, and, um, you know, even in my young adult years, the one thing I always respected is that the guys and gals that were on TV were professional hunters. I mean, and, and I mean, lifetime hardcore professional hunters. You know, we look back to guys, Primos and the Drury Boys and, you know, even go back further to people like Brenda Valentine. And I mean, you know, these were guys and gals that spent their entire life. The one thing I've seen a shift in the industry and, and, and I don't like it, I really don't, is, you know, when you're on TV, you're, you're looked up to regardless of, you know, what you want or don't want. And I see now that it's more popularity contest on who hunting celebrities are versus being hardcore experienced hunters. And you know what, if I get beat up on that, whatever, I don't care because I mean, to me, hunting has been a profession my whole life. And it's been a highly ethical thing that was pounded into my head by my dad and my grandpa. And, you know, if I'm going to be out there putting myself to people as with any professional industry, a lawyer, a doctor, whatever, you should be qualified in what you do. That's one shift I don't like in this industry at all is I've seen some people where I watch their shows and I shake my head because not only are they way off on conservation and management, but they have no understanding of the hunting uh, aspect either. And that is one thing I do want to bring to light. Yeah. So those are the changes in the industry. How about yourself? Have you, have you changed in the, uh, you know, the 10 years of, of being on television? I've gotten old and slow. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, what I'd have to say, I definitely matured as a hunter. The, the one thing that putting a camera in front of your face and a crew and putting the focus on the entertainment and the, the experience and the messaging, um, it's really taught me to slow down and be careful in what I say, because I, 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 I do have influence. It's also taught me to really just um, slow down and enjoy the hunt. Uh, I think as a young guy, you know, you see a goat up a mountain and you just want to like rip up there and get it, you know, whereas now I've really learned to just slow down and enjoy all of those moments, regardless how painful they are. 
And I have to give a lot of credit to that to the camera because again, it's not about ripping up the mountain. It's about trying to put you as the viewer into our hunt and seeing the pain, seeing the grunt, seeing the sweat, seeing the, you know, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. And then seeing the exhilaration of getting the animal, but then also seeing, you know, the pain of getting off the mountain type thing, you know, whereas before I never really appreciated those things. Yeah. I somewhat know what you're saying. I think I, maybe I should uh, bring a camera along with me without any film in it just to, uh, just to enjoy that. Cause I, I always seem to be rushing up the mountain still, but uh, you know, I'm just in my forties. So maybe, uh, maybe in the next few years, I'll learn that as well. Hopefully as I noticed as my kids, I started hunting with my kids. My oldest is getting into hunting a lot now and it's a lot different hunting with him. You get to sit back and actually enjoy, enjoy the hunt. Um, so when we first spoke, you were busy editing, and now I know you went to film school. Can you tell me a bit about uh, film school? Yeah, no, it, you know what? It, it's kind of funny. Like a lot of my family with me and went like, you know, geez, Dean, you're 52 years old and you're going back to university. But, <laughs> uh, you know, again, when, when Kent and I started the show, we were very ignorant and uh, we had no idea what we were getting into. We did have an editor and the editor did a great job. But the one thing that we saw is because the editor wasn't on the trip with us. There was key components. It didn't have that feel that we really wanted to or the experience that we wanted to and you know although the clip cinematically may have looked better for the editor but for the storytelling this clip was better so it forced me in my year two to start learning uh, through self-teaching um how to edit and so from season two and a half on all the editing has been me and i've been getting better and better and better with that journey but with covid hitting us and you know having this little bit of a lull I decided to sign up with Yorkton University's Toronto Film School and actually pursue a videography uh, production uh, degree. And uh, so I started that venture about four or five months ago, and I've been loving it. And I'm learning a lot of stuff, but I'm also learning a lot of the stuff that we learned by self-teaching of, you know, that I think if I would have known it, we would have had a better show in our probably seasons one to four uh, versus what, you know, we produced back then. So it's been a great adventure though. Yeah. How long, so how long is the process of film school? You've said you've done four to five months. Do you have to go, is it reoccurring? You have to go back again and. Yeah, it's two years. I have to, well, it's actually two years, uh, but I'm doing two courses every three months. So it's kind of a compressed timeline. So at the end of it, I think I have 20 or 30 course credits that I get out of it in order to achieve my actual, not my certificate, but my diploma. So it, it, I'm going to be doing this all the way until October of 2022. Oh yeah, cool. So now you're currently in the editing room. Um, what are you editing? Uh, right now I'm still finishing off uh, some of the Q1 and Q2 episodes uh, for Sportsman's Channel. And uh, so it's a lot of the hunts that we did this past fall and past spring. And it's uh, it's a lot. It takes 36 to 40 hours of butt time, uh, you know, to put together just one 22-minute episode. Wow. But uh, film time, how much film time goes into one 20-minute uh, episode? You'd be shocked. Usually the rule of thumb in the industry is 10 times the amount of footage, uh, you know, versus what you actually use. But I, I know for Kent and I, uh, usually at the end of it, we've downloaded anywhere between 150 to 200 gigabytes of footage to produce one episode. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. Now the process of editing, um, you said you do all your, your own editing. Does that include you do the sound and everything yourself as well? Or is there a sound team you work with? And, and so w- when you're done editing, where does it go from there? Like, where does it, how does it leave you to getting on television? Yeah. Well, Kent and I own, uh, Thunder Boys Productions Incorporated. Uh, we are a full in-house, uh, editing company. 
So we, we do everything in-house. So what you see on TV is basically what Kent and I, you know, film in the field. And then from here, it comes into your, your production component and then all the post-production as well too. So all the audio correction, video correction, uh, music, everything like that is, is all done in-house. Basically, we produce our files, including the attached closed captioning files, and uh, they get uploaded through various FTPs to the United States, to Canada, and uh, whatever digital platforms we have to produce. Do you just work on your own stuff? No, no, we, uh, we offer uh, full production services. Um, like for instance, next year, we're gonna be working with a, a hunting show. It's actually a group of girls uh, based out of Ontario that are all huntresses. Oh, and cool. uh, we're, we're gonna be doing production for them. So they do all the filming, everything like that. But and then it comes into to the post-production uh, into our studios and we uh, put it all together for them. We also have another TV show that we just well, actually do full production for it. And believe it or not, it's a ghost hunting show. Uh, you know, so again, you know, it's, we, what, sorry, well, it was a what? A ghost hunting show, a paranormal hunting show. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, we, we produced that fully right from front to back. Um, the hosts of the show uh, live out of Kamloops area. We're not in front of the cameras, but we do all of the uh, pre-production, production and post-production for that as well, too. And it, it airs on television as well. So, so you know, I'm not uh, insinuating that uh, that you're getting old and you need to retire soon or anything, <laughs> but it, with your with uh, film school and Thunder Boys, is that something that you kind of want to eventually, when you do get off the camera, is that something that you want to sort of transition into? Yeah, I think, and I don't mind you saying that. I mean, I'm 52 years old. I don't hide that from anybody. Definitely my youthful days of tearing after sheep day after day after day is, is not a reality. I, I still get up there. It just takes me longer to get up there. But yeah, no, I, I don't think, uh, you know, Federal's trigger effect is, is my retirement. Kent and I have talked about it um, for the first time in like 10 years. We did kind of a for ourselves hunt this year and we forgot how fun it was to just hunt you know, for ourselves and, you know, kind of brought that discussion around. We're not willing to pack in the bag yet. We still have a lot of stuff that we think we need, especially our message of conservation and management. Like I, we really want to push that and we're pushing it hard with our conservation connection piece with Lethbridge and uh, Safari Club International is now pushing us international with those messages. So I think, you know, we still have five to 10 years, probably closer to five than 10 uh, left being in front of the camera. But yeah, my my retirement plan, you know, because I, I'm not the kind of guy that I think could just retire. I, I, I think I go crazy. So I definitely am looking at doing, you know, staying in the hunting industry, but working in behind the scenes to help other young talent come up and get onto TV. Uh, and Kent is a taxidermist by trade. And, you know, that's what he's going to do. He's very artistic, uh, you know, being a biologist and a hunter. And so he'll get back into his taxidermy. Yeah, cool. So you, you mentioned you guys did a self hunt. Do you get uh, to do a lot of or any hunting where you're not in front of a camera these days? <laughs> that literally it was what it was is we were filming a gopher episode and we were pushing some new 17 HMRs that came out by Savage. We racked up enough footage in two days of shooting and we had three days scheduled. And so Kent and I said, let's go out and just have a day of fun. No cameras, just have a good time. And, uh, that's the first episode, believe it or not, or I can't call an episode, but that is the first hunt Kent and I've gone on since we started the TV show without a camera. Yeah, well, that's 10 years of, must have been quite different, I imagine, of always it, being in front of a camera to not being in front of the camera. It, it felt very weird. And I know that's going to sound funny, you know, growing up and hunting since I was young, but it, it felt very weird because you're so used to taking your cues from a cameraman, being aware of your blocking and the angles and, 
you know, not pulling the trigger until you get the thumbs up and, and, you know, you, you have to always constantly think of like, how do you tell the story? You know, what are you going to say? What, you know, what sponsor are you going to push? What outfitter you're hunting with? Whereas we just got to sit down and shoot gophers and it was, uh, yeah, we had a ball. I mean, we were giggling like two little high school kids. It was awesome. Yeah, I bet. So how long did it take you to get comfortable in front of a camera? Like, you know, what was it like for you for the first time sitting, you know, like you said, when that red light goes on and you have to tell the story and, and I mean, there's a lot to it. So there is, uh, it was absolutely brutal in the first two years. Um, I remember prior to going out and filming our first episode, which was a, a mallard, a late season mallard hunt in Saskatchewan. Um, we went out and shot some test footage and we brought the test footage back just to kind of see what we were like on camera, you know, what we needed to do and everything like that. And I remember, you know, I had friends and family, including my wife in the room and we reviewed it. And my wife looked at me and she's just like, this is never going to fly. Like you suck in front of the camera. Like you, <laughs> you look like this, this, you know, concrete, you know, yeah. man attitude, no emotion, no nothing, <laughs> right? And uh, so it actually forced Kent and I to start looking into, you know, self-taught again, but, you know, going on YouTube and finding out like, what do you do to actually, and, you know, everything they say, you have to overact, you know, in order to, because cameras bland you out. And so, you know, your emotions, you have to ramp them up that more. Your, you know, mannerisms, you have to ramp it up as well too, to really get it across to the viewer. You know, there is an acting component to all of us. Like, I, it, am I the Dean Trumbly you see on TV? Heck no. Because if you came to my house and saw that, you'd think I was a, an idiot, you know, because you'd be like, what is up with this guy? Like, Ridlin, please. So it's uh, it's just the way it is, right? Like, it, it it was a learning experience. And like I said, you know, it, Ken and I were super ignorant, Kevin, coming into this. Like, you know, what you see now is is basically 10 years of huge mistakes, um, you know, and, and learning from those mistakes. Uh, it, it's not just as easy as grabbing a camera and filming. it. No, you know, until the shot hunting's boring, it's hard to promote or, you know, it's hard to sell TV because you're just quiet and you, you're moving slow or you're moving very quickly where the camera wouldn't be able to keep up to. You. Yeah. So to get it where people can watch it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother ballgame. So yeah. you guys, you do your, you do your, you plan your hunts a year in advance. So being 2021 coming up, you're pl- you've already got your, uh, you already have season 10 planned. Can we get a teaser for that? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to give you a teaser. Uh, so you have to remember a lot of our hunts from 2020 got bumped into 2021 and 2021 was already booked. So we have a very busy schedule coming up. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'll be doing a lynx hunt in Northern BC here coming up. Um, on top of that, in end of February, we're gonna be heading to Namibia finally. Uh, we were supposed to do that this summer. We're going there and we're filming six back-to-back episodes that'll be spread out over a few seasons, uh, mostly Plains game. Um, I do finally get to go after a Cape Eland, which I'm really excited about because they're about as, they're as big as our uh, Canada moose. Like they're a massive, massive animal. Yeah. Kent took one a couple of years ago in South Africa and I've dreamt about that ever since. Um, we're doing the East Cape in South Africa, which is considered one of the most beautiful parts of Africa as well. Um, we're going to be heading down there. We're going to be going to Newfoundland for moose. Uh, we've got uh, potentially Ireland coming up as well too. We're going to be going over there and hunting some species. We have a really exciting season, South Dakota for pheasant. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be an action-packed uh, year. Yeah, sounds like it. What about looking back? What what uh, what would you say is your most memorable hunting story? Or memorable so, hunt, I guess. Memorable hunt, not not just including TV, because mine would be not TV. Um, yeah, absolutely, my most, absolutely. 
my most memorable hunt, even though I'm a hardcore mule deer hunter, you think it's a mule deer story, but it isn't. I'd have to say my, my extreme memorable hunt that I really am proud of is, is the first time I did a solo mountain goat hunt down in Sage Creek uh, in the Flathead area of British Columbia. I uh, I'd shot a, a few goats prior to that, never been able to breach the 10 inch mark. And I promised myself I'd spend as much time on that draw as I could to find a 10 inch billy. Um, I finally located one and watched him for two, three days. And, and I could see why he was 10 inches because he was just a mastermind and staying in areas you, you could get to him, but you couldn't get him. And uh, any goat hunter would know exactly what I'm talking about there. And finally, on the third day, he moved into a bowl that I realized I could get into. And I had to start uh, hiking up in the dark, uh, got in on him just after lunch, shot him by the time I boned him, caped him through the, it was, I can't remember, my pack was just over a hundred pounds. It was a ridiculous amount of weight. And then I hiked out, I got back out. It was like one, two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and I remember, uh, and I know you and I talked about this, especially in the first talk, but you, you get to that point where you are mentally broke, you're done. Absolutely. And physically broke. And I was playing those little games of looking at a rock 30 yards ahead and saying, I got to get there. And that's a win. And then a tree, I got to get there. And that's a win. And I remember by the time I got to my truck, I, I dropped the tailgate. I swung my pack onto it, kind of let it flop in. I went into the front of my truck and, and I passed out. I, I, I was out cold for like three, four hours, like just from physical exhaustion. Um, and I think that's why it's my most memorable hunt. And it was a 10 inch billy. And I was super excited about achieving that goal, but I was actually really proud of how hard I pushed my body uh, to get that goal. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah, we have talked about that. And like I said before too, I hunted the Sage Creek area for goats and man, it's not easy in there. I did the, you know, same similar story. You get to the truck after, after a long pack out and yeah, your bag and everything goes into the back of the truck and then you're out. Out yeah. till morning. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to let you go here pretty soon, Dean. Uh, I know you got a lot of editing left to do. And uh, unfortunately, now you're going to have a little bit of snow removal to work on. So, but uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, I just, you know, I think the, the only thing I could add that is just a message to hunters is, is we need to unite, you know, and, and I really want to push that. We need to unite. We need to put all these stupid little contests and ego contests and everything behind us because it's not just killing us as hunters and and as the hunting community but it's it's killing our resource and and also to to understand conservation and management um you know if you're taking something from the land edu educate yourself on it and give back and and that's not just in the aspect of i buy my hunting license or i'm a member of rocky mountain elk or whatever i mean you, you've got to get involved physically get involved you know talk to your biologists educate yourself educate others take a young hunter out um and and i think that's the biggest thing because um whether we want to believe it or not our sport you know i shouldn't call it sport our lifestyle our lifestyle is dying and yeah. and i even see it in new hunters nowadays they don't have the same level of knowledge as we did growing up because we had to learn how to live in the bush. We had to learn how to, you know, orienteer. We had to learn how to live off the land and everything like that. And it's a dying art. And I love it. I love hunting. I can't stress it enough. And I think I just, the message I say to people is, is as hunters, we need to unite and we need to preserve our lifestyle and we need to show how amazing it is to everybody because it is an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the term unity is something I definitely hear a lot of lately. Uh, it's unfortunate that we have to talk about something, you know, that should be so given. 
right now this lifestyle we all love as you said is so fragile um, the hunting community has to be very careful how we advocate for hunting moving forward uh, i know people are going to say well i'm not advocating for hunting i i love hunting and i post those pictures of animals i kill from my buddies and you know i don't give a shit what anyone thinks but uh you know the unfortunate reality is that hunting is a privilege not a right in this country and uh our privilege to hunt is in the hands of of you know the 85 percent of the people who don't hunt you know the non-hunting community um yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, as our big cities keep growing, uh, so does so does the number of not only the non-hunting community but anti-hunters as well. And you know, if the perception of hunters gets swayed inside the non-hunting community by the anti-hunters, we're uh, we're going to be in real trouble. So you know, we have to be really careful how we share our hunting experiences and stories. And you know, I'm I get it uh, as a hunter. You know, I get the fact that we all want to show off our achievements, and I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm as guilty as anyone of it. Uh, but uh, you know, the thing I I really have contempt with is is the criticism between hunters towards hunters. Well, and, and Kevin, the one thing I want to say is I I remember it was about two years ago I sat down with an anti-hunter, and a hardcore anti-hunter, and uh, my whole goal was not to change their mind, but I, I want to kind of get in their mind and. The one comment that the individual said to me that absolutely destroyed me is, is I said, you know, why is it that you're after the hunting community so bad? And he's like, well, I don't have to be after the hunting community. He says the hunting community does a good enough job tearing itself down. I just worry about the, the other people that are, you know, 90% trying to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sat and thought, what a sad comment, but it's true. Yeah, you so know, true. It, it is true. We, we tear ourselves down. And can I've taken the perspective of, if it's a if it's a legal and ethical hunt, we support it. And what I mean by that is, for instance, I've been to Africa a couple times. After this year, it'll be more than a couple times. I have no interest in shooting a giraffe, no interest at all. That's a personal choice, though. Mm-hmm. If I see somebody shoot a giraffe, I will one hundred percent support them on it. You know, and it's the same thing. I, I mean, I'm a bull hunter. I'm also a rifle hunter, but I would never bash an archery hunter, you know, because I think they should rifle hunter and vice versa, because again, that's personal choice. And I think that's the problem is we have too many people pushing personal choice and you can even take a controversial subject like high fence hunting, you know, Mm -hmm. and again, it's legal, you know, and it's ethical if it's done legal, but if it's a personal choice, the individual to not do it, I still would support someone who does do it because it's a whole part of the industry that, you know, supports people's families and everything like that. And I mean, you can choose to call it hunting, not hunting, whatever. But I, I think the problem is, is that when you do that, you know, you're starting to push your personal choices. And that's what's tearing us apart. Because that same person who may do a high fence hunt, also may be one of the biggest supporters to conservation and management by donating money and joining, you know. And, and I just, I think that's the downfall of our industry. I hate to say it. It's, it's we're too busy pushing personal choices instead of supporting hunting uh, you know, now if it's a poacher, that's a different scenario. Yeah, you know, I, I yeah. There's no place. For, there's no place for poaching, but there is a lot of criticism in the hunting community that that should definitely stop. And yeah, and, and you know, uh, Scott Ellis and I talked about it uh, uh, before. It's just it just starts with a conversation. It just starts with everybody talking, sharing their story, and then maybe it'll open up people to seeing their point of view. And uh, yeah, it all begins with just sharing your story and and working together, and educating yourself. Yeah educating yourself you know because uh for instance when i went to south africa what a lot of people don't realize most of south africa is high fence operations but the reason they're high fence is because of poaching you know so they have these fifty thousand, you know hectare parcels of land that are sectioned off by high fence and of course everybody gets against it but the reality of it is if that didn't happen there'd be no animals left 
Yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's, again, it's educating yourself. Right. And, and it's, it's, yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. I mean, if you educate yourself to what's really going on and then you, sh you share your story or that story, um, the educated story and the correct one with other people, then they're going to see, they're going to, you know, my, like my neighbor, uh, we were having a, a conversation about, and he knows, he knows I'm an avid hunter, but he, we were having a conversation about hunts in Africa and his perception of the hunts in Africa was sort of distorted, you know, and then once I explained to him how it really works, he was, he was blown away. He's like, oh, wow, no shit, eh? Wow. I can't, I had that all wrong. I just, I just was reading uh, an article and then I just assumed I said, yeah, but you got to look who wrote the article. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot to it for sure. Yeah. So fake news, fake news is one of the biggest problems I see within and outside of the hunting community as people believe this stuff without researching where the information is coming from. And I'm glad you brought up Africa because what a lot of people don't realize is as short as 50, 60 years ago, the majority of animals in Africa were endangered. And there's one thing that changed that. And it was hunting. Hunting yeah. saved the wildlife. And now the populations for the majority of species are the highest they've ever been. Why? Hunting. Hunting mm -hmm. is the number one reason. And there's no other reason why hunting has been saved in Africa. Yeah. And, you know, the, there's some groups that use it. They use the outfitters as, as ways of pushing trophy hunting, as they call it, where, you know, there, yeah, there's Americans coming into Africa and they're spending a lot of dollars to harvest these animals, but all that money is going back into the, into the protection of the animals. Also, like you said, for the last 50 years, it's, it used to be endangered, but it's not anymore. And it's, it's all has to do with hunting. Do I have time for just a little, little story? Oh yeah. You bet, bud. So we were hunting South Africa and one of our trackers, his name was Raymond. And Kent and I were curious one night. And so we're sitting around the fire and we walk, uh, We said, let's walk down and talk to Raymond because he could speak the best English out of, out of our trackers. And we sat down with Raymond. We said, hey, Raymond, what, what do you think of us Canadians and Americans coming to Africa and hunting? And he says, I love it. And we're like, really? I said, like, don't you miss hunting? And he goes, no. He says, because I am hunting. He said, you're pulling the trigger. I'm hunting. And we laughed because, you know, he is right. But he said, that's not why I like it. And I said, why? And he says, well, Dean, you got to understand. He said, when I was a kid, he says, food was very scarce in Africa. Jobs were very scarce. Poverty was everywhere. And he says, but you come here. And he says, I get to hunt full time. I get paid for it. He says, my wife works for the outfit and she does all the clothes and laundry and stuff like that. And as everybody may or may not know, but when the meat is shot and harvested, you know, some cuts are taken, so we get to try it, but all of it goes to the villages in the area. Right. And See, so that's yeah, that's it, a good point too. And, you yeah, know, that's one thing, one thing I forgot to say, but I, I did mention that to my neighbor when we had our discussion is that all that meat, none of it's wasted. It's not like you're just caping the animal out and leaving it there. Yeah. It, it all has a purpose. No, and, and the locals eat everything, hmm. like not just the meat, but I mean, the stomach is tripe, the heart the gut lining they use everything and that's what raymond said he said prior to you he said we had starvation and poverty he said we were hunting everything into the ground because you know we had to feed our families you know for the meat and it was getting tougher and tougher he says whereas now he says the outfit we were with in south africa he says four of my family have jobs he said on top of that the animals are back more than ever we still get all the meat more meat than we normally would get you know, and he says, I get to hunt full time versus before we were starving and had no money and barely got meat. So I think that's the thing, right? It's like you said, you, you've got to learn to listen and educate yourself and not listen to the fake news that is out there. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, 
Dean, I want to thanks for coming on the show again. Done this twice. We'll get it out once, but uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, where can everyone find you if, if we want to watch you? Well, right now in both Canada and US, we're on Sportsman's Channel. Uh, in Canada, we air five times a week. You can go to our website, which is www.triggereffect.tv. And all of our information's on there. Plus, we're on all social media platforms as well, too. Okay. Well, that's great. Okay, buddy, I'm going to let you go. I got a... I got a snowman to build with my kids and I'm, I know you're busy too. So uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Take care, Cal. Okay, later. Bye. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.